Well, to just kind of uh, do one little uh, follow-up to this morning as we talked about what's happening in Israel and how we're to respond and understand that, both because I was uh, meditating on that this whole past week, as well as Psalm 89 that we're going to look at uh, this evening, a uh, Psalm of the Davidic Covenant. I'd been praying for uh, Jews in general, but it occurred to me it's important to pray for Jews in our community. Um, They need the gospel. They need to know their Messiah. But for them, uh, the pain of what's happening in Israel is is very real. And I just um, felt compelled to reach out. And so I actually last night wrote an email to a local rabbi. His name is Rabbi Jonathan Klein of the Temple Beth El. And this is what I wrote. It was on our behalf, so sorry I wrote on your behalf, but this is what I said, and he graciously uh, answered. And so I thought I would just share this with you. Dear Rabbi Klein, though we have never met and, of course, would have significant differences in faith, I am nevertheless compelled to reach out on behalf of our church simply to say that we hurt for the horrors being committed against God's people in Israel. We have a very strong commitment to and love for the Jews of all ages and places, believing them to be the chosen people of God through whom all the knowledge of the only true and living God has come to the world. I teach from the Torah frequently, and we strive to obey Psalm 119 to love the law. We have prayed for the Jews in our city and for the certain grief and anguish as all of us watch the injustice being perpetrated. Above all, we continually pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for great blessings from above to come to God's beloved nation. If there is some way we might encourage you, we would be delighted to do so. But know that we pray and are believing for God's mercies. Tomorrow we shall pray Psalm 122, which is we did this morning. And I wanted to read his response. <clears throat> Turns out he's in Jerusalem volunteering, uh, helping there. Dear Pastor, <clears throat> your words are extremely comforting and a blessing for us. As I prepare to return to California after a week of volunteering in different capacities here in Jerusalem, I am touched by your outreach and that of others who have been so kind and thoughtful about the well-being of the Jewish people. I am sad to leave Jerusalem, having felt such a deep connection to my fellow Jewish community members and wanting so badly to protect them from the brutality that they are experiencing. Nevertheless, I feel blessed by your kindness and to know that there is much work to be done in my community. I would love to learn more about the way in which your community connects with the Jewish community, and if there is some way I can support your commitment to Israel, I would be grateful. Your checking in means a lot, and I encourage you and others to reach out to the Jewish friends on a regular basis during this difficult time. Perhaps at some point I can visit your church as well. Thanks again, and God bless you and your congregation, Rabbi Jonathan Klein. I think that's a good tangible reminder for us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. These are, these are real people who need our prayers. And of course, they need the Messiah. And I, I acknowledge that up front, that we have significant differences, but I didn't make that the point of this email. But pray for them. And you heard his admonition that if you have Jewish friends, this is the time to reach out to them. And that, that means a lot to them. So I just wanted to share that with you. I thought that would be as encouraging to you as it has been to me. Well, toward that end, turn with me to Psalm 89, and we're really kind of at the beginning of the Millennium mini-series, Old Testament Witnesses, and this is the part where we finally get to just look at individual texts. 
through the prophet Nathan, as you're finding Psalm 89, through the prophet Nathan, God gave David a glorious set of promises. Promises that are known as the Davidic covenant. We've covered these in previous messages, but let me just remind you of these promises. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And in David's lifetime, enemies of Israel were subdued. They were put down. And by God's help, his son Solomon ruled first as a co-regent at the end of David's life, and then as the sole king of Israel. Now, from the vantage point of the Davidic covenant, from that vantage point, that view, the reign of Solomon, for the most part, was a smashing success. He was the wisest man on earth. He was the wealthiest man on earth. Kings and queens from all over the known world came to see him. And we've said in past messages how Solomon became really a foreshadowing of what the future reign of Christ on earth would look like. And one man who lived during this time was a wise man. In fact, he was so wise in his own right that 1 Kings 4.31 uses him as a comparison to say that Solomon was even wiser than him. And this man is Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan very well may have been around at the very tail end of David's reign. He saw all of Solomon's reign as well. Now remember, for all intents and purposes, Solomon was seen at least as the initial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The kingdom truly was glorious. It was peaceful. It was prosperous. It was majestic. Solomon was wise. And Ethan saw all of it. He was witness to it. In other words, the very pinnacle of Israel's national history was right during the lifetime of Ethan the Ezraite. And so Ethan pins... Psalm 89, a record of Ethan's bursting joy at the incredible nature of God's covenant with David and and what it looks like in the nation. Now, what does this have to do with the millennium, the series that this message continues? Well, Psalm 89 focuses with great intensity on the Davidic covenant, but with some underlying themes which makes it very clear that prophetically, Ethan begins describing something beyond David, beyond Solomon. The fact that the Davidic covenant continues to be spoken of in eternal terms, in literal terms, it points the reader forward to the greater David, to Jesus Christ who is to come. But that will become more apparent toward the end of our time tonight. Now, initially, I just point out that the psalm has repeated themes which point us to royalty, which point us to to God's plan for a king. We have themes of the loyal love of God, the chesed love of God. That happens a half dozen times. We have the theme of the faithfulness of God a half dozen times. The throne of David a half dozen times. David, my servant, three times. The anointed, three times. The covenant, four times. So very clearly, this has a future kingdom covenant theme to it but for the moment i just want to revel in what is really the brilliant exuberance of this psalm 
Ethan is fairly bursting with joy because of God's faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. He's lived through the glory years of Israel. He's witnessed firsthand what God's chosen nation under a righteous king could look like. Protected, peaceful, prosperous. And so just to give some broad dotted lines, I want to look at three ways Ethan expresses his joy at God's covenant with David. Three ways that Ethan expresses his joy at God's covenant with David. First of all, Ethan praises the God of the covenant. Ethan praises the God of the covenant. Psalm 89, a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite, verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindnesses of Yahweh forever. From generation to generation I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have cut a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne from generation to generation. Selah. Now it's very clear that the central theme right up front is God's covenant with David. Verse 1 contains the first of seven occurrences of the important Hebrew word hased, the loving kindness, or in the ESV, the steadfast love of God. This is the abiding, covenant-keeping love of God. This is not just mere emotional love. This is a promise-keeping love. And in verse 1, Ethan is singing of the loving kindnesses, the countless multiple instances in which God shows His steadfast love. Now, right off the bat here, we could make some general applications that were to praise God for His, his covenant loyal love. And, and I understand that. We'll make that application later. But in context, Ethan is specifically noting the Davidic covenant as the expression of God's steadfast love. This is what he's referring to. And look how secure this covenant is. In verse 2, it's established in the heavens. It means that nothing happens on earth that can alter this, that can change the course or can erase it. You even notice that the emphasis Ethan gives on a key component of God's covenant with David, one which emphasizes permanence and stability and durability. What is that? Well, God promised David in 2 Samuel 7.13 that his descendant would build a house for God. Now, that can certainly be taken in the sense of Solomon literally building a temple, but more broadly of the messianic king to come who's building a household of God, the citizenry of of the kingdom. And in verse 2 of Psalm 89, we we get this theme. Loving kindness will be built up. Same Hebrew word as 2 Samuel 7.13, forever. It's that same theme of permanence. And then you get in verses 1, 3, and 4, the three instances of forever, forever, forever. This is permanence. This is stability. This is durability. One of the key reasons we have for giving God the praise that He's due is because He is a keeper of covenants. This is one of the heresies of the Roman Catholic religion. They present a God, and be very clear about this, the Roman Catholic religion presents a God that is not a covenant-keeping God. He's not a covenant-keeping God. God makes no promises concerning your eternal salvation in the Roman Catholic system. You have to do good works. You have to participate in as many of the the seven sacraments they hold to. You have to go to Mass. You have to go to Confession. You have to try to be a good person. And if you're a really good person, you'll go to heaven. 
If you're a sort of good person, you'll go to purgatory to suffer until you've been made good enough. And if you're a bad person, then you simply go to hell. But God makes no covenant with you. He makes no promises. But the true gospel is given under the new covenant in Christ that God covenants with you. The Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen, if God is not a covenant-keeping God, then your worship is nothing more than the desperate appeasement of a fickle God, little g. That's all it is. Your devotion is based solely on trying to keep this God, little g, happy as long as you can get to heaven. And so Ethan here is absolutely right to give God praise because he is a covenant-keeping God. So the first way Ethan expresses his joy at God's covenant with David, Ethan praises the God of the covenant. And the second way he expresses his joy, Ethan describes the God of the covenant. He describes the God of the covenant. God, the giver of the Davidic covenant, is described in terms so glorious that it's almost too much to bear. It's, it's like looking at the sun without blinking. In verses 5 through 18, we have set before us a masterpiece of a compact, tightly woven series of statements about God. This is a master class in theology proper. And so we could divide Ethan's descriptions of God into three broad categories. First, in verses 5 through 8, God is incomparable. God is incomparable. Verse 5, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the sky is comparable to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh? A God greatly dreaded in the council of the holy ones and fearsome above all those who are around him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Yah? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You can see Ethan's point, the incomparableness of God. Who in the sky is comparable to Yahweh? In other words, who in the spirit realm can be compared to him? Verse 8, who is like you, Almighty Yah? Now you notice that he makes a reference in every one of those verses to comparing God to the assembly of the holy ones, verse 5, the sons of the mighty, verse 6, the council of the holy ones, in verse 7, and the hosts, in verse 8. Who are these beings? Well, these are the great and majestic beings of the angelic realm created by God. Now, I know you're already getting ahead of me in your mind, so I'm going to try the race to catch up to you. In your biblically trained minds, we're reminded that this comparison of God to the angels, it pulls our New Covenant, New Testament thinking forward, doesn't it? To an entire chapter in the New Testament devoted to the fact that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. Hebrews chapter 1. That there's only one being better than the angels, the creator of the angels. Hebrews 1.1, God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. 
who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And listen, the connection just gets better. The author of Hebrews uses the kingly coronation formula from Psalm 2 concerning the Son of God, from 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, and from Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27, which we haven't gotten to yet. So Ethan is describing the incomparable God in exactly the same terms that Jesus Christ, the incomparable God and Son of God, is described. So the view on the horizon of the coming messianic king is becoming clearer. The first description, God is incomparable. The second description, God is almighty. God is almighty. Verse 9, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And once again, you go, this is New Testament. We're already drawn to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, looking out on a stormy sea. Luke 8.22 records, now it happened that on one of those days, he and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they set out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and the windstorm descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and in danger. And they came to him and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Well, we know who it is. It's Almighty God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 10. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your strong arm. Rahab speaks of a sea monster, some beast of the sea that God would overpower easily. But more importantly, notice the context. God crushed Rahab and scattered his enemies. Maybe Rahab has another connotation. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who chopped Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Who is this? The context tells us the next verse. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Oh, Rahab is a nickname for Egypt. And it was against Egypt that God dried up the waters of the Red Sea for Israel to pass through and then decimated Rahab, that monster trying to pass through the sea by covering her with the waters. And now Ethan extols God's almighty nature, his might in terms of his ownership of creation and his power over his creation. Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, sing with joy at your name. God owns the north and the south. And then Ethan, interestingly, references two mountains. Mount Tabor... Mount Tabor was the scene of Deborah's and Barak's great victory over Israel's enemies in Judges chapter 4, a demonstration of God's strength. 
Mount Hermon, over 9,000 feet at the north of the Sea of Galilee, is an illustration of the height or the exaltation of God. Or to put it this way, God is both strong and high. Or to put it as Ethan does, verse 13, you have a mighty arm, your hand is strong, your right hand is exalted or elevated or high. God is both strong and high. And now God's might is paired together with His kingship. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So, first description, God is incomparable. Second description, God is almighty. It's the third description in verses 15 through 18, God is lavish. God is lavish. We sang earlier of God's lavish love. And I won't read all of it to you, but just look at the blessings given to those who walk with God. You can kind of track with me, beginning in verse 15. In verse 15, we're blessed to know the loud shout of joy. What is that? That's a, that's a victory shout of exalting the God who is incomparable and almighty. Do you honestly think, I, I know we're not very charismatic around here, but do you honestly think that when Christ returns and we're with him and he conquers all his enemies, that we're just going to go, yay. You know, no, I think there's going to be some loud shouting happening there. Uh, Ed can finally let loose in, in, a, in a comfortable environment. This is a loud shout that says, finally, finally we live in a world that is exalting our Savior from coast to coast. Verse 15, we're blessed to walk in the light of God's face. And again, we see these little nuances pointing us to the Messiah. Once again, we're reminded of the true King, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That we walk in the light of God's face. Verse 16, we can rejoice all the day. Verse 16, by the righteousness of God, we're exalted. Now that brings us forward to the New Testament as well, doesn't it? That by the righteousness of God, we're exalted. We think of... Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In verse 17, God isn't just our strength, but He's the beauty of our strength. He is our horn. This is a symbol of strength, of power. He's exalted. And why can we boast of our strength in the Lord once again, back to the kingly theme, verse 18, for our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. God is lavish. The Apostle Paul put this all together in one very succinct, concise, compact statement. He said it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What a description of the God of the Davidic covenant. God is incomparable. God is almighty. God is lavish. The first way Ethan expresses his joy at God's covenant with David, even Ethan praises, praises the God of the covenant. Ethan describes the God of the covenant. And the third way that he expresses his joy, Ethan quotes the God of the covenant. He quotes the God of the covenant. Now, beginning in verse 19, Ethan is speaking prophetically on God's behalf. 
Verse 19, formerly you spoke in a vision to your holy ones. Ethan is recounting conversations God has had in the past with, quote, your holy ones. Now, if you have a translation other than the Legacy Standard Bible, it may be in the singular, your holy one. It should be plural in Hebrew. It is your holy ones. In verses 19 through 37, we have the content or the summary of visions and conversations that God has had with his holy ones. Who is this speaking of? Almost certainly it's speaking of two prophets, Samuel and Nathan. Samuel, a prophet early in David's life, and Nathan, a prophet later in David's life. Samuel anointed David, he announced to David that he would be king, 1 Samuel 16, 13. And David was announced to by Nathan that he would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. So the Davidic covenant is centered around and given through Samuel and Nathan to David. So he's recounting these words from the past. In verses 19 through 27, Ethan quotes God's words about the coming king. What is the king like? From Ethan's standpoint, these are words God spoke in the past, but because of his vantage point, the words have a future feel to them and can point us beyond David himself. In verses 19 through 25, the king is a mighty one. He's an exalted one from among his people. He's the anointed one. The act of ordaining the king, we get our word Messiah from this word anointed He will be established and strengthened by God. He will never be deceived by evil. Verse 22. Now at that point, we're clearly looking beyond merely David to a sinless king. He shall crush his enemies. The only enemy Jesus crushed his first time on the earth was Satan at the cross, but at his return, all human enemies will be crushed. God's faithfulness and covenant love will abide with this king. In God's name, the strength of the king will be established. Verse 24, and he'll have a worldwide rule. Verse 25 says, I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. This is speaking of a worldwide rule. Now, in finishing these quotes concerning the coming king, Ethan finishes this section with official coronation language, which I referenced earlier. Verse 26, He will call to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is the heart of the Davidic covenant. And I know this is hard to do, but try to put aside your New Testament lenses for a moment. In the Old Testament, it's actually very rare that God is pictured as the Father of His people. That's a rarity. And so this is an uncommon and an exceptional reference. And I want you to note this. This father-son description is not merely relational. It's indicative of an official agreement between a great king, known as a suzerain king in the ancient Near East, to a servant king, known as a vassal. For example, King Ahaz, the 11th king of the southern kingdom of Judah, was in trouble because the Arameans and even the Israelites of the northern kingdom of Israel were coming after him to attack. And so Ahaz sent for help to the emperor of the Assyrian empire, Tiglath-Pileser. And listen to what Ahab calls himself in relation to the Assyrian emperor. 2 Kings 16.7, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. 
Come up and save me. Now, this is important because in the context of understanding the suzerain-vassal relationship, the great king to the servant king relationship, there's a flavor of reward for faithfulness that the, the great king, the suzerain, rewards the vassal king for some sort of great deed of loyalty. And ultimately, what faithfulness, what loyalty will Jesus Christ demonstrate that will win for him the kingdoms of the earth? Well, ultimately, that great act of loyalty is the cross. And we have this recorded very clearly in Philippians 2, that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God, the great king, the suzerain king, also highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. So Ethan quotes God's words concerning the coming king. And now he quotes God's words concerning the coming kingdom. The kingdom itself, and this is tied directly to God's words through Nathan the prophet to David in 2 Samuel 7. And like the original covenant, there's really two layers of looking into this, humanly speaking, that even immediately Solomon is somewhat referenced here. Verse 30 warns David's sons not to forsake God's law. But then we look farther in the prophetic telescope to the coming divine king. And in verses 28 through 37, we see the nature of the coming kingdom. Verse 28, my loving kindness I will keep for him forever. Verse 29, his seed shall endure forever. Verse 36, his seed shall endure forever. Verse 37, his throne shall be established forever. Stated in negative terms. God promises, verse 33, I will not break off my loving kindness from him. Verse 33, I will not deal falsely with him. Verse 34, my covenant I will not profane. Verse 34, I will not alter what comes forth from my lips. And verse 35, very clear, I will not lie to David. And in fact, just to seal this deal, the permanence, the durability of this coming kingdom, we have in Psalm 29, the singular place by my study at least, in all of the Bible that tells us what the sign of the Davidic covenant is. Remember that God's covenants with men have signs, repeatable, memorable, continual reminders of God's faithfulness. The Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah, has the sign of the what? The rainbow. It's repeatable, it's continual. The Abrahamic covenant has the sign of circumcision repeated to every male born of Israel. The Mosaic Covenant has the sign of the Sabbath, a weekly reminder of dependence on God and provision from God. And the New Covenant has the sign of the Lord's Supper, communion. And the Davidic Covenant also has a sign, a reminder of the nature of God's promises to bring a forever king to rule the earth forever. Verse 36. His seed shall endure forever and his throne As the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. The sun, the moon, the stars, that as long as those endure, God's promises to David will endure. They will remain. Ethan quotes God concerning the king and concerning the kingdom. I want to go back and look once again at these official coronation words. Verse 26, 
You will call to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. From a human standpoint, at the death of Jesus Christ, the kingly line of David ends. Again, from a human standpoint, it ends because Jesus had no son. But in his resurrection, he establishes that he is the ultimate. He's the end of the line. He's the ultimate, final, high Davidic king. And in fact, I, I point this out because the words of 2 Samuel 7, 14, the Davidic covenant, Psalm 2, 7, the coronation, which are both referenced here in verses 26 and 27, are associated in the New Testament, you ready with it for this? With the resurrection of Christ. They're associated with the resurrection. The apostle Paul was preaching in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch And Acts 13, 32 and 33 says, And we proclaim to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And boy, oh boy, do we need this information. How vital it is to look forward to what God would do after Ethan's lifetime. King David died knowing that his son Solomon was taking his throne. Solomon becomes a partial foreshadowing fulfillment of God's covenant with David, a a foreshadowing of the coming messianic king. Ethan was there for the glory days of Solomon's reign. But he was also there for the enthronement of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was a disaster. Rehoboam tried to assert his authority by being domineering over his people. And the kingdom would split, leaving Rehoboam now in a military uh, stance much, much weaker in his position on the political landscape of the ancient Near East. Scholars have differing opinions on the situation at the time that Ethan writes Psalm 89, but the most likely scenario happens in Ethan's lifetime under the reign of Rehoboam. In the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, King Shishak of Egypt invaded and ransacked the king's palace and brought shame to the dynasty of Solomon. Second Chronicles 12, 1-8 records the event. Rehoboam immediately led the way to Israel, forsaking God's law, led the way to covenant unfaithfulness and treachery. And because of their unfaithfulness, Shishak, the king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. He brought a coalition of several nations that were so numerous that 2 Chronicles 12 says they couldn't even be counted. They couldn't make an estimate. You couldn't see uh, the end of them at the horizon. Shishak captured the fortified cities all around Jerusalem that were there to be the first line of defense and was at the city gates. Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and proclaimed, Thus says Yahweh, you have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to Shishak. Rehoboam and his officials, at least temporarily speaking, humbled themselves before God, but God allowed Shishak to ransack the temple and the palace. In 2 Chronicles 12, 9, So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. He even took the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Now, 
in that context in which Ethan has expressed his joy at God's covenant with David by praising the God of the covenant, by describing the God of the covenant, and by quoting the God of the covenant, Ethan does one more thing. Now he blames the God of the covenant. He blames God. And the whole mood of the psalm just does a shift so radical. It's 180 degrees. It's so unexpected. It it almost takes your breath away. Verse 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your slave. You have profaned his crown to the ground. You have broken down all his walls. You have beset his strongholds with ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies glad. You also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him arise in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have wrapped him up with shame. Selah. So in Ethan's estimation, the king of Israel has been rejected, God has poured his wrath on his anointed. He's spurned the covenant. God has profaned the crown of Israel. He's broken the walls of the fortified cities. He's destroyed the reputation of Israel with surrounding nations. God has made Israel's enemies ecstatic with joy. God has made the weapons of Israel like a dull, useless sword. The splendor and the majesty and the might of the king of Israel has ceased and been cast into the dirt. And now even the king's life will be shortened and characterized by shame. And now Ethan complains to God. He complains that since in all likelihood by this time Ethan is an old man, he's seen the glorious end of the reign of David. He's seen all of Solomon. He complains that he's too old to wait to see if God's going to change these terrible circumstances. Verse 46, How long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire Remember what my span of life is. For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. And now skip ahead to verse 52. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen and amen. And you go, oh good. We have a happy ending. Don't get too excited about this. Ethan didn't write that verse. That verse is not the end of Psalm 89. That verse is the end of book three of the Psalms from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. Here's how Ethan ended. Verse 48. What man can live and not see death? Can he provide his soul escape from the power of Sheol? Selah. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your slaves, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Yahweh, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Ethan ends with a note of despair, which incidentally seems to run in the family for the Psalms. Ethan's brother, Heman, wrote Psalm 88, which is nicknamed the saddest psalm, And Psalm 88 ends like this. Verse 17, They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. So Heman and Ethan, I wonder if growing up around them was like like clinical depression. 
They each get one psalm, and they each end it on a note of despair. And of course, that's God's sovereign plan, because when it ends in despair, we look for hope. Because the end of Psalm 89, in a very subtle fashion, illustrates for us two realities. And listen very carefully, because they're subtle. The first reality that we see at the end of Psalm 89 is that left to sinful, imperfect men, the King of Israel and the throne of Israel will ultimately always fail. Why? Because the kings are sinners. And sin must be paid for. And not only are the kings sinners, but the kingdom will fail because it's constantly populated by unredeemed citizens. So ultimately, the kingdom's going to fail. The second reality, it's illustrated at the end of Psalm 89 that the coming king must first accomplish the work of salvation from sin before taking the throne and populating the kingdom with the redeemed. And so these two realities put together show us that as things are now, the kingdom will never be successful. But there are three references in these last few verses that when you put them together, point to a definite reality. The first reference is to slave or servant in verse 50. The second reference is to God's anointed. We get our our word Messiah in verse 51. And then in verses 50 and 51, the third reference is to reproach or mocking or insulting. Slave, God's anointed, reproach. You're already seeing it, aren't you? That the servant or slave of God who is the anointed, who is bearing mocking and reproach and insults, you can almost picture the cross of Christ in these verses. You can hear the classic Isaiah passages, Isaiah 52, 13. God speaks of his servant who will be high and lifted up. But first he's to be despised, mocked, forsaken, even though he's the anointed one. Isaiah 53, 4. And by this work of salvation, Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. You see, the way forward for the king of all the kings, the highly exalted one to rule on the earth someday, was for the king of all the kings, the highly exalted one, to be found among sinners and to go to the cross. That was the way, such that he could then populate his glorious future realm with perfected, resurrected saints from all the ages. Now, I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression of Ethan. You remember where Ethan began? Verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindnesses of Yahweh forever From generation to generation, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Ethan, the one who complained, listen, my life is too short to see this happy ending happen. Nevertheless, he makes a determination. He says, I will sing. This is a verb form in Hebrew which can can express either a wish or a request for permission or simply a declaration. In this case, it's a declaration. It's a determination. It's something Ethan has said, I will do this. I will sing of the loving kindnesses of Yahweh. How long? He says, forever. What is this? This is a determination by Ethan that by faith, By faith, he'll believe, he'll trust, he'll worship God for his faithfulness to his coming kingdom 
listen, both in this life and if he doesn't see the happy ending now and in the life to come. This is reminiscent of a much older determination made by a godly man named Job a thousand years before Ethan. And I'll close with this determination, which is the same as Ethan's. Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will rise up over the dust of this world or stand upon the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, in other words, my resurrected body, I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see. One scholar I read was so eager to protect Ethan's reputation that he begins his commentary in verse 38 at all the negative stuff, and then he goes back to verse 1. I thought that's a, a good way to go. Ethan illustrates the coming glory of the Davidic kingdom with a messianic king, Jesus Christ, ruling on the earth, but he also illustrates what we feel often today. How long is this going to take? Have you cast off your people forever? But God hasn't. I myself shall behold, my eyes will see. When Jesus Christ comes, it will be the greatest I told you so in the history of the world. What a great day that will be. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this psalm. It's epic in scope. It takes us in human experience from the ecstasy of joyful expectation to the degrading depression of total hopelessness and everything in between. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Ethan who is with you even now and beholding your glory and eagerly waiting for the king to return to the earth. As we spoke of this morning, may we eagerly await our Savior. May we eagerly await the the final step in our salvation that is either our deaths or the rapture of the church. We look forward to a day and it is so real and it seems nearer every day when the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all the kings, will literally reign in Jerusalem. What a day that will be. May we continue to pray for that day and may we continue to be faithful to tell those around us that that day is coming that grace is available right now, but it will not always be so. May we be missional in our thinking to let the world know that the King is coming. We thank you and praise you in the King's name. Amen.